0: Morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul, so glad you're here, whether it's in person, online. You know, watching that that video inspired me to quote a little Shakespeare. May I I do so? You know, in Henry V, King Henry makes a very famous speech, right? The English are are gathering up at Agincourt to, to go attack the dreaded French the next day, and they are largely outnumbered. They are hugely outnumbered. And some of the men are, are questioning should we even be here? Where are all the other men in England? And Henry says something very famous, and I'm, I'm quoting here. He says, And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speak. That's just code for, guys, don't hold your manhoods cheap. Don't be that guy that's sitting around the lunch table and hearing everybody else talk about Four Oaks Family Christmas. Don't, 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 don't be a curse. Don't be that guy. Show up here tonight at five o'clock. It's going to be an awesome time. But for this morning, you won't be disappointed, I promise. This morning, though, we are in Galatians 4. I invite you to turn there. For Advent season... What we are doing is we are taking five messages to unpack, wait for it, two verses. You may say, well, Pastor Paul, what what would possess us to camp out on like two verses? I mean, we've been preaching through Genesis and going through these big chunks of Scripture and narrative, and let me kind of use this illustration to help us understand why I think this is a good change of pace for us. I know many of you have uh, Thanksgiving traditions where you go around the table or with your TV dinners in front of the football game, what have you, and you try to answer the question, what are we thankful for? And let's be honest, if you've been doing this a few years, the responses are pretty predictable, right? God, friends, family, something like that. And you have to, as a parent, kind of get creative with your questions. You have to say stuff like, you know, guys, what are your, what are three things our family has done this year that's made us really thankful to be a part of this family? And then there's crickets, right? No, you, know, you get the idea. Use that one for next year. Because the reason is that anything after a while sort of generates this generic, nondescript response, and anything like that is not particularly honoring. It's not particularly meaningful. And I think the same thing happens with us at Advent and Christmas. There's a lot of slogans, right? A lot of things that we repeat, a lot of symbols, cultural symbols we we rehearse year after year. We say things like, keep the Christ in Christmas, and... Jesus is the reason for the season, but so oftentimes, we say it so often, we're not even sure anymore what we really mean. However, when we get up and close and personal with the Advent, up and close, personal view of the incarnation, when we know Jesus and see him more clearly, that honors him that glorifies him, that fills our souls. And so what I'm praying for us this Advent season, you know, typically Advent Christmas is just a breathneck neck pace through the next three weeks. I'm really praying this year will be different for you and for us. I pray that we would be able to slow down. I pray that, that it would just kind of be this slow motion replay, this film, where we get to, to look, as Pastor Scott said last week, this diamond, this diamond of the incarnation, and that we could look at it, examine it, we could fix our eyes on it, that God would open our eyes to new things, things that aren't aren't new to his word but might be new to our hearts, and that seeing those things, we would be filled up, we would be empowered, we would be emboldened, we would have something sturdy, something solid, something substantive for our souls. Now, Pastor Scott last week, kicked us off in this series talking about the plan of God and how in the fullness of time, God sent his son. And he really focused on that aspect of God's plan, that the pe- God's people in the Old Testament were waiting, they were groaning, they were anticipating the coming of their Messiah. And that should really resonate with us, right? Because if 2020 is nothing else, it is a season of waiting and groaning, we 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 call out to God we're asking him for help we're asking him to make sense of the cultural shifts around us we're asking him to make sense of the of the of the of the temporariness of so much of what surrounds us in this life how could you walk through 2020 and not have that sense of waiting and groaning and calling out to God so this morning as pastor Scott last week talked about the plan of God We're going to talk about the pre-existence of God and why that is so important. So I'm going to read from Galatians chapter 4. I'm actually going to read the first five verses to give us some context, but verses 4 and 5 are really where we're focused. Let's hear God's word together. "'I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father.' In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Here are the two verses. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's pray. Father, would you do... Unexpected things for us this Advent season, Lord. So many of us I know dread this season. It conjures up old memories or painful pasts or broken relationships or people who were no longer with us. Lord, it can be a it can be a financially difficult time. It can be hard on our on our marriages, our families, our kids, our relationships. Lord, it, it, it exerts an inordinate amount of pressure. I pray, Father, that you would do what only your Holy Spirit can do, Lord. Would you bring into greater clarity for us these next few weeks the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Jesus and his free existence. Got three points, and here they are. Number one, we're going to talk about Who was he? Number one. Number two, who is he? And then finally, number three, why does it matter? Okay, number one, who was he? Let's look at verse four. It tells us in the fullness of time God sent forth his son. That word sent forth, exapostello, literally means to send out on a mission. Now we're going to talk about that mission in more detail in the next few weeks but the essence of that mission was that for god in order for god to save man god had to become man in order for god to save man god had to and this is kind of mind blowing become something that he was not in order for god to save man he had to come, become something that he was not man he had to die He had to rise again in order to save his people from their sins. That was the mission of Jesus. Now, in order for God to fulfill that mission, he had to do something that he, or become something that he wasn't already. Now, listen, without ceasing to be who he already was. Let me say that again, that's so important. In order to save us, yes, God did have to become something, a man, and we're going to look at that next week, that he wasn't, without ceasing to be who he already was, and that is the eternal God of the universe. And it's so easy in this time, in this season, to lose the, the divinity, the reign, the majesty, the lordship of Christ as we focus on his humanity, but I really want to press upon us this morning that unless we keep firmly fixed in our hearts and our souls and our minds, that in fact Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he's never stopped being that. He always has been that. He always will be that, that ultimately we have, we have no hope. Now that quote that I gave you from Henry V, In that same passage um, comes another very famous line where Henry talks about us Band of Brothers. And Stephen Ambrose, of course, historian who's now, who's no longer with us, wrote a book um, called Band of Brothers. It was about Easy Company, the 101st um, Airborne that fought in World War II. But he also wrote another book, okay, he wrote many books, but another book that he wrote, not as well-known, but I think just equally impressive, was a book called Citizen Soldiers. And and this was a book about how a largely, and this is kind of mind-blowing if you think about it, against the face of fascism in Nazi Germany and and Japan and all the Axis powers, he talks about how a largely voluntary army made up of non-professionals were able to conquer the world. These were men and women who were recruited out of their vocations. They they were folks like musicians and teachers and construction workers and office clerics and accountants. These were the guys and the women who were called out of these former professions to become something, listen, that they had not been previously in order to accomplish a mission. But what's interesting is that they did this and guess what they did? They went right back home and kept doing what they were doing before. They, they may have become soldiers, but they never ceased being citizens. They went right back to their vocations. They, they, they accomplished their mission without ceasing to be who they already were. Now, do you see the parallel here that we're talking about with the incarnation? You see, Christmas does not begin at Bethlehem. Christmas does not begin with a pronouncement to the shepherds in the field by the angels. It does not begin with an appearance of Gabriel to the holy family. Christmas, it is no understatement to say, begins with the eternality of the Messiah. Long before Jesus became man, He was true God of true God, which we sing about this morning. Here's just a couple of passages, and I just pray that God will renew your hearts in these as you hear them in a fresh way. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We may think, well, what in the world was Jesus doing for all of that time from eternity past? Obviously, an eternal relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, this one being in three persons. But let's remember... The astounding thing that the scriptures claim here, before the incarnation, do you realize that Jesus was God's principal agent of creation? You see, we just got out of Genesis 1 where we talked about how God made the heavens and the earth, and how his spirit hovered over the water. But now do you see that, that it's not, it wasn't just merely a, a generic spirit, that in fact, Jesus Christ was there at the beginning of human history. He created all things. He was God's principal agent of creation. I was reading something this morning where I was reminded, and and this is amazing, this is astounding. Think about this church. Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days by Satan. And remember, this was desolate, barren wilderness in the Sinai Peninsula. Do you realize that before time even began, it was Jesus who created the very geographical terrain of his own suffering? It was Jesus who was in charge of every aspect of his creation. It was Jesus, now we're not going down this rabbit hole this morning. Do you realize it was Jesus who created his very tempter? You see, when we, when we think about the, the import, the impact of these sorts of passages, we see that Jesus is not Johnny come lately. Jesus is, is not just appearing on the scene after a rough patch of human history. In fact, Jesus has been reigning before time began from all creation. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Utterly mind blowing. If you spend some time on this, I encourage you to do so. A mother made by her own child, a mother. The the, the sovereign Lord creating the people and the circumstances, which would orchestrate his own delivery to the cross. See, Jesus is far and away this hapless sort of do-good prophet who wanders onto the scene and is misunderstood by multitudes. No, no. From start to finish, what does Jesus say? I lay my life down and I take it up again of my own accord. No one takes it from me. No one takes it from me. Jesus, how how is this possible? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us. He says this. He's speaking about Jesus. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus the writer of Hebrews says, is not God's B-team. He's not junior God. Now, now, Jesus has a different function than the Father, and we're going to talk about that next week. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus is an exact imprint, an exact duplicate of the Father in terms of his being, in terms of his essence, in terms of his substance. Yes, he's distinct in person, Okay, So this is what we call, theologians call the hypostatic union, where God weds Jesus' divinity and his humanity. It's not a 50-50 deal, though. We're going to talk about Jesus' humanity ne- this, next week, but this morning, it's about his divinity. 100% God, true God of true God. And here's what Wayne Grudem says about this. God the Son exactly duplicate, duplicates the being or nature of God the Father in every way. Whatever attributes or power God the Father has, God the Son has them as well. Think about this again. When you start reading reading these kind of passages and just asking God to open your mind to them, we're all familiar probably with Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah goes into the throne room of God and the cherubim and seraphim are, are singing about the holiness of God. And Isaiah just becomes undone, and he falls on his face and eats the carpet, and it's like, woe is me. Do we now realize who's on the throne? Because John seems to be saying that when he goes into the throne room, who's on the throne? It is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this is 100% true of Jesus Christ. Is this the Jesus that you know? I'm not talking about the merely the Jesus we remember and celebrate and sketch out um, nativity scenes, as important as all those are, and as important of a place as they, as they, and what they teach us about Jesus's humanity. But, but let's never forget, church, that before any of that, Jesus was on the throne. He set aside his, his prerogatives of, of, of reigning in the way that he was in heaven, set it aside temporarily for a time, but now he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And that is the Jesus you and I worship. Now let's look at why that's important. Okay, so, so who he was, who was he, who is he? Because the universal unanimous testimony of the Christian church for the last 2,000 years is that Jesus Christ is Lord. We say it so many times Again, it's one of those things that oftentimes loses its bite, it loses its its full import. But do you realize that Jesus is referred to as Lord over 200 times in the New Testament? Now, in the Old Testament, we know that there were various names for God depending upon what attribute the Scripture writers were wanting to uphold. So whether it's El Shaddai or Adonai, these were all the scriptures that highlighted a particular attribute of God, whether he was the provider or the comforter or the redeemer. However, there was one name above all names. There was one name that every Jew knew was the supreme name of God, and that was Yahweh. And, and God first disclosed himself as Yahweh to Moses at the burning bush when Moses said, God, like, who do I tell them sent me? He says, I'll tell you who to tell them who sent you. Tell them I am. And Moses, I'm sure, is like, well, that completely clears that up, right? And so what we learn, do we not, in scriptures is that it's not that God was or God will be. God has always been. I am. It was the name. The scripture writers in the Old Testament used to refer to God in his holy, eternal otherness. He was Lord. And so in in your Bibles, when you look in your Old Testament, and if you see the word Lord capitalized, that's the word for Yahweh. It was such a holy, precious term that the Jews would not even utter it. They would hardly speak of it. Now, here's what I find fascinating. When it came time to translate the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, when it came time to translate it into Greek, and that, in the first version of that was, a, was, a, was the, Bible, the biblical version of what we call the Septuagint, the word for Yahweh is Lord. But every time in the New Testament when it refers to Lord, Kyrios, it's always, almost always, in relationship to Jesus. And, and, and let me just give you a couple of examples. And I think that when you hear these passages again with that sort of understanding, that when, when, when the scripture writers were, were writing, when, when the angels were appearing and they were declaring the coming of the Lord, they were declaring the coming of nothing less than Yahweh. And when we think about that, um, I, think, I think some of these, these timeless passages that we're so familiar with will fall on you in a new way. Think about the shepherds. They're in the field. And the angels appear and listen to what they say, Luke chapter 2. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, who is a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. You see, this is why the shepherds were so dumbfounded. This is why they were so anxious to rush into the village and tell whoever could hear it. This was not merely a Messiah. This was not merely a king. This was not merely a savior, little s. This was Yahweh himself coming, born as a baby. It was staggering. It was overwhelming. You know, there's a lot of higher critical thought and sort of deconstructionism which wants to say that this idea that Jesus is Lord or Jesus is God was a late development you know, fourth or fifth century AD, it's the Council of Chalcedon. It was, it was a political compromise. It was something they, they came up with, this idea that God's a, that Jesus is hundred percent God and hundred percent man. Who can believe that sort of fiction? Of course, this was, this was something invented sort of after the fact. And I just want to communicate so clearly for folks, that is utter hogwash. If nothing else is crystal clear that from the earliest days of the church and from the ministry of Jesus himself those who followed him acknowledged him as Lord acknowledged him as Yahweh as God himself let me just give you a couple of examples Peter the first time he ever meets Jesus and by the way, if you want to see a great, great recapitulation of this story, go watch the Chosen series. I think it's episode four. It's my favorite. It's our family's favorite, um, by far. But it, but, but basically, Peter has been out all night fishing. He's caught nothing, and he comes into shore, and there he meets Jesus, who tells him to cast his net one more time. To which Luke tells us he does. And he proceeds to to catch so many fish, the boat begins to sink. And what is Peter's response? How does Peter respond to this? Well, thank you, Jesus. That was a timely catch. Appreciate that. Okay, let's go five, five. No, no, no. He falls to his knees and he says, I am a sinful man, Lord. I am unclean. You are my Lord because he knew unequivocally that only one person can do this. There's only one person in the universe with this sort of power. It is God himself. Isn't it interesting at the end of his stay on earth that Jesus appeared to Peter. Peter's again fishing, hasn't been restored to Jesus yet, hasn't caught any fish. Jesus tells him again, cast your net. He doesn't recognize who Jesus is or his his appearance is not disclosed to Peter but as soon as all of those fish start to swarm into Peter's net what does Peter say it is the lord it is the lord guys the church continued to proclaim this theme thomas when he touched the hands of jesus my lord and my god stephen in acts 7 he's standing at the right hand of the Father Jesus says John in Revelation 1 this is John is the is the is the disciple who laid his head on Jesus breast but when Jesus appeared to him as the resurrected living Christ John is falling down before him in worship he is the king of kings and the lord of lords now you say well pastor Paul I I, I get that I appreciate you drawing that to my attention this Advent season. What is the relevancy for me now? And that's our last point. Why does this matter? And I'm gonna I'm gonna divide this into two two reasons. Okay, there's obviously overlap between them. The first is a theological reason, a second is a practical reason why you and I should be keenly interested in upholding the Lordship of Jesus Christ before us always, particularly this season. And the first is this. Our rebellion, this is the theological reason, is one that is primarily against God. I know that when we look at the cultural landscape, when we look at um, the shifts that are around this, the conflict that seems to sort of be eating up our country, eating up our world, when we view all of these conflicts as sort of on the horizontal level, as this group against that group and this person against that person one of the things that scripture makes abundantly clear to us is that ultimately at the root of all of those horizontal problems is a vertical problem this is a fundamental problem that we have in relationship to God that we rebel against him we don't accept his design we don't accept his will we want our own way we want, to, we want to be right. We want to, we want to make our voice known in the public square. We want, to, we want to, all of those sorts of things. Ultimately, we think it's about these realities. And Scripture reminds us, as David does in Psalm 51, it's against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. Which brings me to this. If our primary problem is against God or with God, then it just makes sense that God is the only one who can provide the remedy. But not only that, God is the only one who can be the remedy. In other words, a savior, a little s, a messiah, a little m, none of those things ultimately will do us any earthly good. Only a Savior who is God is ultimately the source and the solution for all of our problems. And guys, we are so tempted, are we not, to attach our hope into some sort of little Messiah, whether it be a person, a cause, a party, an approach, a philosophy, a way of life, a bank account, a job, a vocation, a family, all of those things are constantly pulling at our hearts and, 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 and asking us in the flesh to trust this. But we are reminded when Jesus comes in the flesh as God, there is only one ultimate solution to man's problems, and it is the gospel. It is Jesus Christ. He had to be God. This is what Wayne Grudem again says. If Jesus is merely listen, a created being and f- not fully God, then it is hard to see how he, a creature, could bear the full wrath of God against all of our sins. Could any creature, no matter how great, really save us? And the answer is an unequivocal no. Folks, there's been many great men and women of history. Many great men and women of history who've died noble deaths, who've led noble causes, who've, had, who, who've, who've seen countries and peoples and groups through their darkest hour. But there's one thing that those people can never be, and that is a sacrificial death on behalf of us a sacrificial death that unites us to God, that fix our fundamental problem, our vertical problem. We need a savior who is also a sacrifice. The only one who can do that is God himself. Second reason, this is a functional one, practical. If all Christmas is for us or for you this season is a remembrance or honoring of A child or tradition or memories or family rituals, as important as those are and as they all have their place, those will ultimately do you no good in and of themselves. Advent, Christmas, is a reminder that we are worshiping and following the king of the universe. And you've heard me say this before. The, the, the issues that weigh us down, the troubles that inflict our marriages and our parenting and our jobs and our money and our health, this life is not meant to bear. It can't bear it. There is no solution. The heartaches of life will overwhelm any sort of human kind of a solution. Guys, we need much more than a manger, although we need that. We need a risen, resurrected, reigning Son of God who John tells us in Revelation 19 is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know, I think Jesus was really keen on having his disciples remember this because at the end of his last night with them and as they're sharing the Lord's Supper together, be reminded, again, this is a passage you've heard many times, but be reminded what he tells them there. Matthew 26. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See, Jesus is reminding them that his earthly ministry was more than simply going about doing good and helping people. His ministry was about establishing an eternal kingdom. It was, it was this idea, this hope that he planted in them that one day he was coming back and that when he came back, he would come back the way that he left on the clouds and that he will be the king of kings, and the Lord of lords, and that every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, that This is, in fact, Yahweh, the sovereign Savior of the universe, and he will collect us back to him, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. We will reign forever with him. And so as we come to the table this morning, we are not merely remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, although that we are. This is part of our covenant oath-keeping. This is part of our vow of allegiance that we are following King Jesus. And as we come in this Advent season and as we light the second candle of Advent, we do so knowing that we are waiting in hope, knowing that one day Jesus will return and he will celebrate this new covenant Of His blood and His body with us, and He in heaven for eternity. For I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and I'm going to pray for us. And as I do, I just really want to pray that God would make this Advent season come alive to you in a very real way. That you would again be recaptured; your heart would be captured by this vision of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That He is a reigning Savior that he has come once, but just as importantly, he's coming back again. And that in that day, all wrongs will be fixed. All that is broken will be put back together. And that for those who are trusting in him, they will spend eternity with their king. Father.